This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is out wherever books are sold. I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior economist to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We have a really interesting show today. We have Professor Siegel joining us for the hour with Torsten Slock, the chief economist for Apollo. We're going to have a very lively discussion. The professor has been going through his views on the economy and inflation and interest rates, what the Fed's doing. We got the Fed meeting. Uh, Professor, curious to get all your takes on what's been happening. Then we're going to have a great discussion with, with Torsten. Um, uh, but Professor, kick us off with your, your initial review. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I don't remember, Torsten, when you and I were on the stage at uh, Joe Jerko's real estate meeting. Oh, it was a number of years ago. And how incredible. Uh, you remember that? I do remember very clearly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I follow your uh, uh, daily, almost daily emails. I think you go on weekends, too. You don't you don't sleep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. And uh, they're they're always fascinating. You have you have you have great grass. We have a lot to talk about. But let me uh, let me give you my take. Um, uh, I a couple of things going on. First of all, I think it was the best news conference that Jay Powell had, perhaps as chairman um, of the Fed. And I say that for the following way. Um, he He's not quite balanced in the sense of risks up and down being the same, but he is more balanced uh, in his views now than he has been. Um, um, uh you know, it's not a knee-jerk, oh, we've got two more, three more increases, inflation is just way too high, it's not coming down as fast as we want, et cetera, and so on. Um, I, I, I saw a lot more balance on that. And I also saw an admission to what the Fed always is, and that is data-dependent, but even more so, he actually called out the data. He's going to, they're going to be looking at the data. That's what they mean by all meetings live. It means it's not preconceived. We decided now we're going to increase. We're just going to look at the data and see whether we think we have to increase or not. So um, I think that that is extremely good. I think that that definitely is positive for the markets. In the meantime, you people who followed me on know that I have raised my view of economic strength and I've raised my view of what interest rates are consistent with uh, the current economic strength to be higher than what I had previously thought. As a result, I do not believe that the Fed is as overly restrictive as I had feared earlier this year. Things were certainly looking bleak in March uh, when the banks, uh, we had regional bank failures, and then in May when commodity prices were crashing. And I do this because I look at forward-looking indicators. And uh, I look at commodity prices, which have turned around. Um, I look at housing prices, which in the case shower have turned around. Uh, of course, I look at the M2 money supply, which has also stopped declining and turned around. Now, none of this guarantees that it's permanent and won't, could not resume a downturn. But when I look at these forward-looking indicators at the given levels of interest rates that the Fed is pursuing, um, I am not as fearful as that it's going to precipitate a recession. Uh, I've lowered my own probability of a recession to below 50% now. I mean, I could give it 30, it's hard to say. Uh, but um, uh, I think that the strength, and again, take a look at what happened with initial jobless claims, which I consider the most sensitive of the early indicators, uh, weekly. Uh, we had talked about it, how much it went up in uh, 
in June looked like that could be the slowdown. And guess what? It just is all already going all the way back down. So, yes, there's some weakness in manufacturing, et cetera, but those claims are still strong. Consumer sentiment is still very strong. Uh, again, I don't think we have a runaway economy, but I think we have a strong economy. Uh, certainly the 2.4% was a, was a surprise. Uh, um, uh, 2% in the first quarter, 24 I don't know, maybe you, Torsten, but I don't know any other economist who last December thought it was going to be the, as high as that. Uh, in fact, the Fed itself, <laughs> this, this has really surprised the Fed as much as anything else that we'd have so much strength uh, in the economy uh, over these uh, first two quarters, despite the steady rise in interest rates, despite the tightening of credit, despite these bank failures. A lot of underlying. Now, as we know, the price level is approaching that increase in the money supply minus the you know the real growth that we've had that means that those excess money balances which caused the inflation back in 2000 and and um uh, 20 2021 are definitely disappearing and people talk about possibility of risks in autumn when people get the credit card for all that they spent uh tuition comes in uh student loans start getting repaid uh, people face uh, more limited uh, circumstances. However, uh, the underlying strengths of the economy are strong enough that um, I think we can carry through that. The important thing for me is that I think the Fed uh, will be looking at these sensitive indicators on uh, the real economy um, and will react by not only stopping rates, uh, but if necessary, actually lower the rates. As I've stressed, we are entering into political season. If we are already in political season, uh, there will be a lot of pressure by the Biden administration um, not to over tighten if we see weakness. At this point, the administration and everyone is giving the Fed as much uh, rope as it wants because we've had no effect on unemployment uh, and, and the things that make the headlines and people care about. If that reverses the pressure uh, from the Democrats will be great. They cannot afford to go into 2024 with a recession going on. Um, the, uh, there's enough problems um, uh, that they face. So uh, there will be political pressure. And by the way, Fed has dual mandate, so they should react to such pressures. Um, yes, there's residual inflation. Um, um, we'll see whether commodity going up. We've seen some firmness. Yes, some of it is Ukraine, the agriculture, uh, they're, they're, whether that sparks another increase not as strong as before. Um, the housing increases have been modest. Uh, we have a very thin market for housing. Almost all of it is in cash because of uh, people not giving up their mortgages. So uh, how much uh, housing prices have actually gone up just in the last two months. It's been very modest, but they're holding firm. That's important. They are not sinking any longer. Commodities, housing, and money. Those three things convince me that higher real rates, and as a result, I think we could have higher real rates. I, d I don't think we're going to have the 10-year go down as much as I thought, um, nor the Fed funds go down as much as I thought. Could it go down by the end of the year? Certainly, but um, we'll have to see how that data goes. But certainly I've now ratcheted up my path of what I think. Um, and by the way, we could see higher um, long-term rates. We can see the 10, you know, actually move uh, above four, given the underlying strength uh, in the economy and the stability of these variables. I think this is good for stocks. Um, obviously, the strength wipes out. Uh, doesn't wipe out, but reduces the recession probabilities, which was the greatest fear. Uh, it leaves the value stocks, I think, very well priced because they were basically priced for recession. Uh, growth stocks are still expensive um, and could react to those higher interest rates, but it's a momentum trade. Their earnings certainly have come in uh, very well um, uh, this quarter. I think we only have one of the Magnificent Seven or two left. 
Uh, and I think all but one jumped on the announcements. So the momentum is still there. Um, I blame the Japanese for breaking the Dow record, which would have been 14 in a row and 130-year average. I do not put much weight on what Ueda did in Japan. I'm a little confused on what kind of message he's trying to say by saying, and now go to to 1%. Is he worried about inflation after 30 years not being worried about inflation? Uh, and then one can ask a fundamental question, does Japan matter anymore? Um, and, um, uh, you know, maybe we can chat on that or not, but I, I think it was an overreaction, and I think today's rebound uh, basically uh, confirms that uh, overreaction. Well, Torsten, we got a lot from the professor there. Let's get your reaction to all that you heard and then get your where you're coming from on some of these these views. Yeah, no, I agree on on, on uh, really more or less everything. I mean, I think there are two things worth highlighting. Uh, the first thing is that uh, we still don't quite know what the lags are of monetary policy. Uh, a lot of literature shows that it takes 12 to 18 months from the Fed raises rates until the economy starts to slow down. So if that's the case, and the Fed started raising rates in March of 2022, uh, there is still a risk that we may see more of a slowdown. And we are beginning to see that in some parts of delinquency rates and default rates for consumers and for corporates. Most importantly, we have seen in the last few quarters, delinquency rates are going up for consumers on credit cards. Delinquency rates are going up for consumers on auto loans. We're also seeing for corporates that default rates for high yield and for loans have been creeping higher. We're seeing the weekly bankruptcy data has been trending higher. All this has been playing out as a result of the Fed raising rates. So the way that I generally think about the economic outlook is that there is a process ongoing where the Fed is trying to slow the economy down. And that process is still playing out, and we still have ahead of us a slowdown as a result of the effects of the Fed having high rates. And it's playing out exactly as the textbook would have predicted, that think about consumers in a credit quality spectrum. So someone has a FICO score of 800, someone has a FICO score of 300. Think about corporates as a credit quality spectrum. Someone has a credit rating of AAA or AA, someone has a credit rating of C. When interest rates start to creep higher, and that's what we've seen with the Fed raising rates over the last uh, 16, 17 months here, faster than ever before, we see the most highly levered consumers start to fall behind in their payments. We see the most highly levered corporates start to fall behind on their payments. So as interest rates have gone higher and higher and higher, we have exactly started to see companies that are more highly levered, consumers that are more highly levered, start to fall behind on their payments. Most importantly for consumers, those consumers who do not have much left in excess savings are exactly those households that are beginning to fall behind on their payments on credit cards and auto loans. And as, as Jeremy just mentioned, uh, we also have student loan repayments coming back here in September and October. So all that argues still for a bit more pressure downwards gradually on consumption and still more pressure gradually on capex spending. That's what we've seen in the macro data. Consumer retail sales has been slowing down same store weekly sales for same store sales for, for for retail has also been slowing. Capex spending has been slowing. So that process of slowing the economy down, which is what the Fed would like to ultimately achieve, is playing out in the background. So the only only added comment that I would have on the macro is this issue that higher rates are working exactly as they were intended, and it could be that this could create a, what we could generally call a soft landing. It could also be that this still can create a hard landing. In other words, that we will see it tipping over where so many people fall behind in consumers or corporates that we ultimately will see either consumption or capex slow down. But I think that the bigger picture for investors should continue to be the view, which is, happens to be also the consensus view, that over the next several quarters, we will continue to see GDP growth gradually grind lower as a result of the Fed having raised rates so much. That's not happening quite yet, as, as Jeremy also just mentioned, GDP yesterday was a bit stronger on some fronts. It was a bit weaker on other fronts. Jobless claims, the weekly data has also generally been weaker. We get next week non-farm payrolls. The consensus expects 200,000. Remember when the Fed started raising rates, non-farm payrolls was growing at 600,000 jobs every month. Then nine months later, it was 400,000 jobs every month. And now we're down to 200,000 jobs. So that's consistent with the story that growth is slowing and therefore hiring is slowing and therefore gradually the economy is slowing. So we'll see, we'll see where we go 
in terms of how sharp the slowdown is. But I do think that we should have a slowdown in earnings you know, on our minds, a slowdown in GDP growth, slowdown in consumption, in CapEx, slowdown in hiring, because that is exactly what the Fed ultimately is trying to achieve by continuously raising interest rates. And the last point I just want to mention is to add on to what um, Jeremy just mentioned on when it comes to the Japan exiting yield control. Uh, one very important thing, as we all know, is that Japan owns more than a trillion dollars in U.S. treasuries. So if Japanese investors now themselves see interest rates rise in their own backyard, then they might begin to look at Japanese JGB yields as more attractive. And given that the hedging costs for them buying U.S. treasuries and U.S. credit are already relatively high, that might mean that when those hedges start to roll over, well, then they do maybe start to think that, well, be, maybe I should be selling my U.S. treasuries and bringing money back to my own backyard where I now can get a higher yield. So I'm a little bit more worried that over the next uh, several months, we could have a more strategic change in asset allocation among Japanese investors, which, again, are by far the biggest holder of U.S. treasuries in the world, namely more than a trillion dollars. So if they start to say, well, we don't want to have treasuries anymore, because now after yield control, which was implemented in 2016, and now just today was now basically abandoned, uh, the band has widened a little bit, but basically opening the, the door to having rates go higher, maybe they will strategically begin to say, well, we should no longer be buying U.S. treasuries, U.S. credit, like we did before. So I do still think that the yen will, as a result of this, appreciate that dollar yen will go down as a result of the uh, money that Japanese investors have in the U.S. coming back to Japan. And I think also that that's going to put some more upward pressure on U.S. treasuries. On top of the other pressures on U.S. yields, namely, we have QT still going on. We have government budget deficits. And the third factor is that a lot of T-bills that are outstanding will be extended in duration and therefore will also increase the supply of bonds and notes, longer dated paper, that also is a risk of putting some upward pressure on long-term interest rates. So I do think that, uh, yes, today, meaning that today where we're talking Friday, we are seeing some reversal in markets on the back of the yield curve control decision overnight. But I think that the, the strategic decisions by Japanese investors, and we can, well, can all see that in the weekly flow from the Bank of Japan over the coming weeks, that will be very interesting and important to follow what exactly is the response among Japanese investors to this change and tweak in policy at the Bank of Japan. So those two things of the issues with Fed policy tightening, uh, coming still in the pipeline, and what Japan did overnight, I think are the two main topics, of course, uh, on, on, um, on the radar screen today, at least here for me. Carson, let, let me let me follow up on some of them. I mean, uh, you know, going from 50 basis points to 100 as the ceiling, I mean, uh, the, our treasuries have gone up 50 basis points in the last two months, I mean, and made up that difference. I mean, uh, is it really a significant change for the Japanese? Now, clearly, if, if they positively uncap it and it goes to two or two and a half or three or whatever, we're talking about something different. But from what I read, uh, it's hard for me to think of that as being a, a significant um, factor. Understood. Understood. And I, I agree that they certainly don't want rates to go up and they don't want to disrupt financial markets. That's the last thing any central banker wants, as we all can agree very quickly here. The only thing that becomes important now is what is the behavioral response going to be? among Japanese investors to this is the behavioral response that the train has left the station and therefore now they are opening up the door to expanding the band even further later on. Well, if that's the case, then you want as a Japanese investor to make sure that you are exposed to an increase in Japanese yields. So yes, on its own, this, uh, of course, yesterday we did see a 15 basis points increase in 10-year rates, which was very, very a big, significant move in a very short period of time. Uh, but the key issue will going forward will be what is the behavioral response going to be now from Japanese investors in terms of saying, well, if we are now going to get higher yields in Japan, then maybe we should be taking some of our money home. Because the whole reason why Japanese investors have been buying U.S. treasuries and U.S. credit for the last seven years at least, and, and if you go further back, actually several decades, because rates have been so low in Japan, it has been that rates and yields in their own backyard have been so utterly unattractive and are now finally becoming attractive again. Yeah. I also want to talk about the dating of uh, the tightening. Clearly, the first Fed funds rate tightening was in March um, of uh, 2022. However, it was the November pivot that started all yields upward. And 
one could actually argue that that's when the tightening began, because that's when Powell, you know, changed, pivoted, changed the language. Long rates started really going up. Um, uh, and uh, and that became really maybe the tightening date. Now, if we take that as a tightening date, we are over 18 months past that tightening date. Correct. And again, you're right. I mean, that, you know, 12 well, to 18, we're now past that tightening yeah. date with, you know, few signs, I mean, of real, I mean, there there is a slowdown, but uh, I, I don't know, I may have missed it. I, I thought I saw a headline of uh, Atlanta GDP for this quarter go to three and a half as an early estimate. Now, again, I may be wrong on that, but, um, uh, you know, that's, that's certainly not a slowdown on on uh, on, 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 on 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 the GDP front. Uh, I myself have been, you know, uh, you know, puzzled by that. But again, I have to look at the those sensitive indicators of commodities and in 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 uh, and in fact housing. I also mentioned, by the way, that a headwind is if you do have to buy a home. Let's say you're you know n- new. You know, just young, you don't have any equity, so you're buying a new home. If you have to finance at eighty percent with current mortgage rates at seven, um, uh, with housing prices up forty five percent from pre pandemic levels, um, and mortgage rates going from two two and a half to seven, you are spending a hundred and fifty percent more for the exact same home than you did three years ago, and that. That's huge. That's one of the biggest declines in so-called affordability in housing that we've ever seen. Um, that could obviously pinch. Now, if you have a home, you have that home equity and that buildup. So, um, but uh, anyone that needs to get a mortgage going on, those costs are should bite the consumer going forward to something that people don't talk to yet. At, at the current time, home Builders are reporting quite decent demand, many of them buying down mortgages, actually, um, to move that inventory, which um, was pretty moribund um, six months ago. Yep, and all agreed. So let's just say that uh, it is indeed the case that, uh, just for the sake of the argument, that the lack effects of monetary policy, let's just say that they have played out. And that's indeed, as you're highlighting, say that housing might be recovering because we are seeing very low inventory in the housing market. Traffic of prospective buyers is going up. New home sales is going up. Existing home sales is going up. You're also seeing home builder confidence going up, home buyer confidence. Even the number of offers received per sold property, bidding wars are coming back. That's also going up. All that argues for housing potentially rebounding at least in the last three, four months. If it is the case, that the economy is actually not slowing down and the lack effects are done, but the economy instead is actually accelerating. Wouldn't we then also agree that that would maybe feel at the Fed, make them feel okay, but then we have to hike rates even more? Perhaps. Because if that's the case, then we are not done with rate hikes. And markets are pricing that the Fed will start cutting rates as we speak in Fed fund futures in January of next year. So if the Fed has to hike rates, we'll have a huge whiplash in the yield curve, even two years out because then the market will begin to reprice that we are simply not done with rate hikes. And that brings back the question whether we then will have the regime that we had in 2022, where stocks were going down because the Fed was so busy raising rates. And if they have to do that again, doesn't that bring back this discussion that stocks in particular, but also credit spreads, could be at risk if we really truly do have a reacceleration or the so-called no landing scenario? Well, it's a question of whether the reacceleration actually reaccelerates the inflation. Um, uh, True. You know, True. really, what, 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 really, yeah. I mean, it's been a, a Goldilocks scenario how much inflation has come down despite real GDP growth being so much higher than expected and the labor market being so much higher than expected. I mean, we, uh, but you're right. When, I mean, if, if commodities start going up, oil starts going up, Housing starts going up, uh, the rentals, which, you know, all those were down year on year, uh, you know, stop going up and start going up again. We won't be done with that 
hiking because there's still going to be those uh, inflationary pressures. Uh, even though there'll be political pressures, certainly um, if they see a reacceleration of that. Now, so far, as I said, I've seen a bottoming, but uh, you know, I'm 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 not going to call it a reacceleration. Both housing prices are still below their highs on case show. Rental indexes are still well below their highs that were all reached in March of last year. Commodity prices. Um, reached their lows, I guess it was in um, May or June. They they bounced back, but they're still way below where they were a year and a half ago. So it's hard to know. It's hard for me to say that that's going to start another inflationary scenario. I think the Fed, I think I detected Powell, and this is not the first time. I think this is May's second or third meeting. He doesn't want to talk about just targeting wages. Um, um, you know, the, and, and he mentioned the ECI, which came in quite good, as we know, this this morning, um, he didn't mention that yesterday. Um, I don't know whether he knew the, what it was going to be or not, but, um, there that's a quarterly indicator. So there's going to be no more of that until, um, I guess October. Um, uh, and that came in fairly good. Uh, he was careful about not just talking about, Wages, we have to realize that wages have, even though they're now year over year above inflation over the entire pandemic period, they've been not caught up with inflation. And uh, there's a lot of catch up that I think is uh, in some of the contracts that have been on that is not necessarily. In, I mean, it, you could interpret it as inflationary, but it's mostly just a catch up of a lost uh, purchasing power and then, you know, I mean, it's it's hard for the Fed to say I, I want I want wages to stay down and unemployment to go up just to knock down inflation. I don't think the American public or the politicians are going to like that trade off. Uh, maybe he'll be a little bit more tolerant. Don't forget, he did say yesterday, I'm not going to wait until inflation gets down to two percent before I stop tightening or 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 that. I mean, that's too late. Yeah. He does recognize he mentioned lags in monetary policy as we all do. It, it, I, I detected uh, a, a little bit about um, a, a little bit more preemptive. You know, we're going to get there slowly. The um, you know, I don't want to over tighten and then you know go below the two percent later and cause a recession that uh, might be invo- uh, avoided at this particular juncture. So it's 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 hard to say whether you know, an economy that chugs along at 2%. Now, we've had 2% in the first two quarters with disinflation. Um, I don't know whether 2.5% and 3%, whether that would be, in fact, inflationary. Don't forget, we've had an unprecedented collapse of productivity growth in the last year and a half. Um, And uh, if we get some of that back, we could argue the causes for that. But productivity growth has been miserable. If we get some of that back, we could get GDP growth up without having pressure in the labor market just by the some rebound in the productivity that has been lost over the last year and a half. So I'd like your reaction to that. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, and, and productivity growth could potentially go up because of AI. I mean, as we can probably also quickly agree, that may take a longer time. But it is true that uh, if productivity growth does rebound, that's not what it's doing at the moment. Then we might be able to get back on track and have this soft landing uh, without uh, much deterioration in the labor market. And just the only point on um, on the reacceleration, I, I hear you completely uh, that it is the case that um, there are certainly at this point a number of indicators that says that it will at least take a while before any reacceleration in housing shows up. Uh, but the only thing, of course, as always, is to remember that housing makes up 40% of the GPI basket, 43% to be precise. So that means that if we do begin to see rents going up, if we do see home prices going up, it does run the risk of a reacceleration. Maybe not this quarter, but next quarter in inflation and particularly going into next year. So the fact that housing has not adjusted as a result, even of mortgage rates going up, it does raise a bigger question, namely, can the Fed get inflation back to 2% without a softening, not only in the labor market, but maybe also we need a softening in the housing market. And that's the important debate in, in, in the outlook here, namely, yes, I totally hear you and I agree with Jay Powell that so far so good, uh, but with the core CPI inflation at 
we are still quite a distance away from the 2% target. And if you stop into a Taylor rule, meaning a rule that John Taylor invented in 1993, inflation and unemployment, you will find that uh, instead funds rate as a function of the coefficients in the Taylor rule should today be 9%. So another way of saying that is that there is also a case to be made that maybe the Fed is actually still behind the curve, despite that they're now, as you said so elegantly also earlier, being much more data dependent and saying, now we're just looking at the data, no forward guidance. We have two employment reports, two CPI prints before the next FOMC meeting. And we'll have to wait and see exactly what that data does before they decide what the next step is. But, but that's all the uncertainty that we as investors are dealing with at the moment, that there's still a lot of data before they will make their next decision. Today, your, your missive uh, email today on what the, the Taylor rule is, Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, just for our listeners, uh, uh, what Torsten was talking about, Taylor Rule, John Taylor, a very well-known and very well-respected monetary economist uh, that played roles in administration and a Stanford professor, um, talked about a Fed reaction function to inflation and unemployment published in the 1990s, um, basically giving weight to how much unemployment was above or below the long-run goal uh, and how much inflation was above and below uh, that long-run goal. And um, uh, then, uh, given those deviations, if inflation was above, then you raise, and then if unemployment is, is above, you lower, and uh, you then have what's called um, the, the Taylor Rule for Fed uh, uh, policy to get back to a true equilibrium uh, economy. Um, now, I, you know, I, I saw yours at, at nine percent, uh, and truthfully, I, I think it I think it's way skewed upward. Um, uh, let, let me let me let me tell you why. Um, um, there, there's there's three parts. One is what is the real rate, the long run real rate. Um, when John Taylor wrote, it was two percent uh, short term real rate. Uh, uh, right, almost all economists now below we what's below the Fed thinks it's about point oh zero point five or zero point six. So to that extent, that lowers by um, uh, a point and a half your uh, estimate. Also, when I, I looked at the equation um, that was uh, done, uh, they have NARU. What is that? Non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, equilibrium rate of unemployment. Uh, you stuck in. Five percent there, Torsten. I don't know if you recall that. Um, I don't know of any economist today that thinks it's as high as five percent. Um, and in fact, the Fed in its SEP uh, projections say it's four percent. Um, that makes a huge difference because now with unemployment at what is it, three six uh, the, the latest month? Uh, that's only a four-tenths of a percent deviation versus um, – uh, you had it at 3.4. That was a low point, when, and that was a 1.6% deviation. Um, so uh, I, uh, that lowers it. <laughs> that lowers it. Third, third point, of course, and, and this is the point I've been uh, – I mean, I don't like the year, uh, year over year as an estimate. I mean, uh, in particular – and this, uh, this actually fits into something you said earlier – uh, I've been appalled at the um, housing, the way they changed the housing index and used long distributed legs to get it into the CPI. You're perfectly right. It's over 40% of the core. I think it's about 30% of the overall and about yeah. only maybe 20 or something percent of the PCE. But nonetheless, 40% of that core uh, inflation, um, uh, the distributed lag is so long that it's a year to year and a half before increases really get in. Um, uh, and Jeremy Schwartz and, and I and, and uh, we at Wisdom Tree have actually computed a um, uh, a year over year a current CPI using current uh, housing data, both on the rental side and on uh, the own owner occupied uh, side, because there's those lags are in rental also, so they they were lagging on both of them. And uh, J Jeremy, what do we have now for CPI year over year if we use absolutely current data? Uh, the, the headline, 
headline inflation would be 0.3, Torsten, and the core would be 1.7. We'd be right yeah, at, at the... <laughs> yeah, that's year over year, um, believe it or not. If you actually use current uh, uh, photo-occupied cases, that's how lagged it was. Actually, I, I've been talking about this for a year and a half, and in fact, I think one of the major reasons the Fed screwed up so much early on was they were using such lag data in housing, they weren't getting the housing inflation into theirs, and they thought that uh, you know, they, they ascribed it to the supply side and everything. Uh, we actually have core inflation moving up. What is on a three-month annualized rate? Over 10%, I think, Jeremy. I mean, it was really high. Had they actually seen current data um, and the BOS, I think, I'm not going to go into the reasons why they're, they're so screwed up on this, but it has to do with the change. Actually, Larry Summers wrote a NBR paper about this, but um, uh, that they would have tightened much earlier by saying, my God, really, the current inflation. So what what that means is reflecting your latest one. If we do get an upturn in housing, believe it or not, the previous downturn from a year ago and housing prices peaked in June of 2022 actually will still keep go in month after month after month for another six months. And it'll take at least six months for any increase now to start filtering <laughs> back in. The housing is so bad um, that it gives you, uh, and of course, uh, that also means year over year is bad uh, and, and all the rest. I mean, finally, it, it took until November 2022 before Powell acknowledged and seemed to even understand that there were two uh, housing indexes, the one that was current, one was lagged. Uh, which was, uh, I think, pretty embarrassing, but nonetheless. Um, uh, so, you know, that that won't get in those so-called official indexes. So, um, but I look, you know, we look at Willow, you look at uh, the others, you see a, a stability more in, more in the home prices now than in the rentals, because there's, there's seasonality, a lot of seasonality in that rental, um, more than the home prices. But um, so anyways, the bottom line is that if you put um, real inflation in uh, the real rate down to one per, uh, half a percent, I actually think it might be even higher, maybe one percent unemployment at three seven and put Nehru at four, which is what the Fed puts it at. You don't get anywhere near nine percent. You get actually pretty much where they are. Uh, well, so I just tried actually to put in four instead of five and it still ends up with a Fed fund rate around eight. But, the, but that's not. Then, yeah, did you put in one nine. and a half? Uh, did you put in 0.5 for the real? So we'll uh, we'll try that. Yeah, that that just lowers yeah. it by one and a half. And um, did you you know did you adjust the um, uh, the true inflation for uh, instead of their distorted uh, inflation rate? <laughs> I'm just telling <laughs> you, you will get way you will you will you will find that rate collapsing. Uh, it's, it's definitely coming down from nine. Let's agree on that. So it is very also touching on a much broader perspective, namely, what is the world going to look like on the other side of this? Namely, what should long-term investors be investing in our world here in terms of expectations of where will long rates be, where will short rates be, what is the potential growth rate of the economy? And all those assumptions do always end up having a very significant impact on the broader outlook for growth. And there's a lot of things going on with the CHIPS Act boosting growth also at the moment, the Inflation Reduction Act boosting growth at the moment. We also have, at the same time, deglobalization also helping in boosting inflation. We have also less immigration, broadly speaking, also boosting wage inflation and therefore boosting ultimately inflation. And finally, we also have green transition that's also boosting inflation. So a lot of the long run views on where things will be and when we all take our spreadsheets out and think about what is the right valuation for this in P500, uh, depend on a lot of different things and a lot of different forces uh, that, uh, broadly speaking, can be pulling in, in a number of different directions. Well, let me ask you, what's your opinion of the long run? I mean, I have raised, uh, I I had thought that the long run, re the R, R star was actually below 0 0.5. Um, uh, and in fact, some of them, like Williams and others, had actually put it minus 0.5. But I've raised that now. I, I, I think it's probably maybe 1.0. And I think tips, which I thought were going to go down 10-year tips to zero, I think they're only going to go down to 1%, maybe one and a quarter. And I guess they're 1.6, 1.7 now. I'm, uh, so there is going to be some reduction. But given um, the, the faster growth, given uh, you know some, some of those uh, spices you talked about, but uh, particularly given the fact 
that people don't view uh, treasuries as the risk hedge that they once did because they are terrible hedges against any inflationary shock. They're great hedges against geopolitical shocks uh, or pandemics, too. Um, but they're terrible hedges against inflation shocks. And, and as a result, if you, you know, take the beta of, of, of uh, treasuries, um, it's gone up dramatically. And uh, we all know that any asset that has more and more positive beta has to have a higher equilibrium yield to be held in the market. So, um, you know, I begin to, to, to think that we're not going to get that far down on interest rates as before. Um, that's not necessarily going to depress equities because, um, you know, people are not liking uh, treasury interest rates may be higher, but they don't regard that asset as as good a hedge. While, while stocks are a great hedge long term against inflation, they retain it. So, you know, people say that higher interest rate won't that squeeze the market. It Higher real rates will have some effect, but if it's not as good a hedge as it once was considered, then I say I'm still sticking with stocks because if there's another inflationary boost, I want real assets. So as a result, they can continue to go up in the in face of higher real rates um, on that. Now, not squeeze higher, you know, in, in, uh, 3 4% or anything like that. That will kill it. Be, but in terms of general equilibrium, in terms of what induces you to hold these asset classes, um, you have to consider the risk as a hedge as well and the covariance as a hedge as well as, as just the difference between the real rate on equities as measured by the earnings yield on equities and the real rate on treasuries as real, uh, revealed by the 10-year tips bond. No, I completely agree. I mean, therefore, maybe the equity risk premium model is not the right model to value equities of. Maybe... If we want to think about it differently, there's also the dividend discount model, which is more the net present value of cash flows, and therefore maybe thinking of yields more as an alternative to equities, even if this is not the safest asset. But then that also raises issues about what credit spreads might be doing, because then people might say, well, why won't I then just buy investment grade credit, which might in some directions be perceived to be somewhat safer, at least when it comes to the risks of everything that's going on with the ongoing government budget deficit and debt levels and fiscal sustainability and everything that goes into the broader considerations about whether treasuries are a safe asset or not. So, you know, there's a lot of lazy money in the banks earning, you know, uh, you know, 30 basis point or 50 or even less. Um, uh, I, I'm just wondering um, whether there could be a tipping point. Uh, you know, people say, well, you know, going from five to five and a quarter, five and a half, whatever, isn't that much. But at one point, people are going to just say, is it, you know, a lot of advisors is say, hey, I don't know what's going to happen to stocks or bonds, et cetera, but I do know that you can earn several hundred or a thousand dollars more, but just by getting out of your bank savings account. And let me let me tell you how and still have the liquidity. Um, and that is that possible to really accelerate or is there always going to be that lazy money there uh, that's going to do those uh, deposit spreads? I mean, I think that that's um, that's. Uh, my, that's my question to you. You've studied these regional banks in showing more detail than I have. Yeah, no, this is a very important question. I mean, as we all know, uh, Silicon Valley Bank uh, went under in the beginning of March, and we're now sitting here in late July. And of course, the key issue that initially was the outcome of that was that deposits started leaving and moving around in the banking sector in a fairly significant way. Uh, we have weekly data from the Federal Reserve, and that does show that uh, in the last month or six weeks, we have started to see more stabilization in the outflows. So that means that uh, at least for now, it looks like deposits are a bit more sticky, uh, and in that sense, not outflowing the way that uh, there were some fears about in the beginning. Uh, that being said, uh, the duration of deposits as a liability for the banking sector has certainly shortened for banks when they look at their deposit base, uh, because banks used to think that deposits were sticky and would be there, quote unquote, forever. Uh, but this episode that we went through uh, has likely meant that some banks are probably looking at deposits with different eyes. And on top of that comes another development that the borrowing cost for regional banks further out the yield curve have still not come down to where the borrowing costs are for the money center or the diversified banks. Specifically, if you look at the banking IG OAS spread and split it into regional banks and diversified banks, it will show you that the cost of borrowing, in particular further out, meaning for several years, 
is about 100, 125 basis points higher still today for regional banks than it is for the big banks. And the consequence, of course, of that is that regional banks are facing now both more uncertainty about deposits. Broadly speaking, there's more, um, it's more unclear exactly how sticky they are and what uh, is the likelihood that deposits might leave. And the second thing is that wholesale markets, meaning where banks also borrow to raise funding, have also exhibited a, a, a headwind for the regional banks where they now pay more to borrow relative to the bigger banks. So yes, we are seeing in the weekly data, and this is in summary and brings it back to the consequences for the stock market. In summary, we are seeing loan growth, and loan growth means lending to consumers, to corporates, to real estate. We're seeing loan growth for small banks declining, loan growth for large banks declining. In other words, growth year over year in the weekly data for week by week by week continues to slow down because the banks are responding to what they went through since March by stepping harder on the brakes. That, of course, should reflect itself in lower money supply growth in the future. Now, we had a big decline in money supply growth in March, April because of the deposit outflow. And that has stabilized. If it accelerates again, you would see a decline in the money supply growth again. Um, Correct. Uh, and that's and, very and, important because that's yeah, and that, and that, that would be yeah. I mean that and and that would be very well in terms. So in in terms and and the macro consequences. We talked about a, a little bit during the break that um, there are probably going to be a lot more consolidations. Um, big banks buying lower banks, uh, lower banks, you know, being folded in. Uh, credit costs to smaller uh, firms are much higher than larger firms that have well-established lines at the big banks or can access money uh, money market funds directly. I said that right at the beginning in March and April. This could be great for the S&P because of the 500 biggest stocks. They don't have any problems there. It's 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 everything below there um, that uh, that does that. And in fact, the, the S&P uh, outperformance started widening actually pretty much at that point relative to the smaller banks as recession fears of, of the smaller firms widened and the others didn't. Um, uh, 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 again, I mean, do, you know, what do you, do you, what is your recession now? Do you have a recession percentage at this time? Yeah, uh, so I, I, this is an important and maybe it's a good way to end our great discussion here. I mean, what is a bit puzzling, in particular, given everything that we spoke about in the beginning of this great conversation, is that the consensus, if you look at it today, is still saying there's a 60% chance that the U.S. will have a recession in the next 12 months. So this is now opening up a discussion about what exactly would a recession look like. Are we talking about just two mildly negative quarters of growth? Or are we talking about a very hard landing like 2008 and 2020? I don't think anyone expects that we will have anything remotely close to 2008 and 2020. So maybe this distinction between whether we're having a recession or, or not is becoming less meaningful in the sense that if it is just a mild, very anticipated, very predicted slowdown, then it could be that markets could potentially continue to trade well. But the risk with going into a recession in very simple terms, in my view, is that if you begin, which is what the consensus expects, if you begin to see from October to March, negative non-farm payrolls, negative job growth. My expectation would be that financial markets will not like that because that is at the moment the expectation in the consensus data. So with that backdrop, I still think that if we still are slowing down because of the lack of effects of monetary policy, in particular, if this involves job losses, I do think that uh, some investors are probably going to get scared and therefore say, oh, if there are job losses for six months in a row, even if they are mild, then that probably does come still with some uncertainty and therefore some downside risk to the equity market. Well, I, I also would like to say that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in this political climate, the first negative job growth is going to be the headline of every paper because it's, you're, 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 you know, it's, it's been, what, well over a year or two years since that's ever happened. And uh, the political pressures are going to be huge on Powell You've got a dual mandate. Um, I, I mean, I would say at that point, if you would take a poll of the public, if they see negative growth and big un, uh, unemployment increase, um, 
what are you more worried about, your job or the inflation? You're going to get the job as as, as what they're concerned about. Uh, you know, um, um, it's almost getting tiresome uh, hearing Powell at the beginning giving the exact same thing. We know how bad inflation is, how it's hurting you and all that. And yes, it has hurt you. It's hurting you a lot less now. It has hurt you um, on that. I mean, apologizing for, uh, you know, the, the, the pain that's given. But uh, it could if it could really shift sharply to the other side, which I think would would basically force would force the Fed to lower it. And so the market would say, oh, wow. All right. So maybe, you know, the Fed is going to come to the rescue. Uh, Fed put talk, which has been buried, might come back. And don't forget, we did have two negative quarters in the first uh, last year, didn't we not, of GDP yeah, growth right. without, uh, you know, I mean, um, uh, without it being called a recession at all, um, given given the labor market. So it's really hard to predict. But I, I do think that's why I said the balanced talk of the Fed, and I do know there are several strong doves on that committee, on the voting committee right now that are really worried about those delinquencies you talked about and other downsides. Um, will come into play. Don't forget, Powell, uh, Powell's term is up right after the presidential election. If he wants to be renewed, um, uh, you know, how he performs is going to be really important. I was going to ask Torsten about uh, his piece on credit spreads and potential default cycle, but we are basically out of time. Uh, Torsten, we'll have to have you back in the future. Hopefully uh, you enjoy this conversation with Professor Siegel. Um, it's been a great Honored to have you, Professor, with you for the full hour. Torsten, uh, Chief Economist at Apollo, a great conversation here on a summer Friday. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Behind the Markets. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.